Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Welcome to Escaping Society. This is mile marker one, two, three. Ah, 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 ah. I am Count Gumby. And I am Teresa. And, uh, whew, I'm a little tired at the moment. I um, just got done. I play a different flute. I had ten flutes, but I've given two away, so I'm down to eight. And uh, when I get to my bamboo flutes, I'm burning in a lot of stuff with a magnifying glass. And today is Bible flute day. Um, I got this one flute that is a native flute, and it's like I was experimenting with how long and thin I could get a native flute because most of them are kind of short and thick, you know. Uh-huh. <sighs> and, um, yeah, so it's got a really pretty sound. It's an F sharp, um, and I happened to find a cross at a, a crucifix, a really nice one, at a um, car wash that we <laughs> happened to be at that day. So I attached it to this flute, and it became the Bible flute. And I've been, like, burning in... Um, Verses from the Bible that uh, especially Teresa has been finding that she liked and wrote down into the back of this flute. And it's uh, it's really cool. If anybody found it, they'd think I was like this fundamentalist uh, just nut job or something. But I like it. It's my Bible flute. How you doing, Teresa? I'm doing all right. Um, it's the first day of fall, according to my paper calendar. So happy that. And it is windy today. Oh my goodness. Yesterday morning was blustery and today it has only stopped for like an hour or two. Clouds are flying by. And it's funny that this is the autumn equinox because it's like nature knows it. Like the nuts are dropping like crazy. Probably before we get done with this podcast, one of us is going to get conked with an acorn. Yay. Oh, and yesterday was the day, the first day. I thought this was really special about the towie. You tell about it, because I think when you know about it, you know how the birds are. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know how them birds are. <laughs> well, let me tell you about them birds. Um, we've been at our campsite for, uh, we've got like one more day left. It's been two weeks at this campsite. We've talked about that. Um, but it's been pretty quiet. We see a bird come through now and then. But yesterday, for the first time, we've heard them a couple times in the bushes, but for the first time, a male rufus-sided or eastern towhee came to visit us um, at the edge of our camp and was just feeding. Um, Now, I know through studying bird language that the eastern towhee is one of the shyest birds. Other birds watch the towhee for uh, the first edge of an alarm when there's something that uh, is worth paying attention to in the bird world. So... When the towhees disappear, they'll make just the most subtle little chip and then dive into the bushes. And then the other birds, they haven't noticed anything going on, but one of them might look up and like, huh, uh-oh, the towhees have disappeared. And then they start paying attention. And so the towhees are characteristically like the most sensitive edge of an alarm because they are such a shy bird. You'll hear them scratching in the bushes, and sometimes you catch a glimpse of them when you're walking. But uh, 
I consider it an extreme an extreme compliment when a towie comes to visit our camp because that tells me they're getting comfortable with us. After two weeks, they've been watching us, they've been avoiding us, and finally at least one male towie decided, you know, I don't think they're a big threat, even the dog. I think he's old and smelly, but I don't think he's a bird eater. <laughs> so that towie came and uh, was, you know, eating. And then the towie got chased off by an eastern cottontail. Now, when we first got to this campsite, I found a dried up puddle that had eastern cottontail tracks and mouse tracks going across it. Oh, yeah. So I knew the rabbit was around, um, but we hadn't seen it except right at that same moment. So I'm not sure what all this means. One thing that happens, at least to us, I think I can speak for both of us here, is the longer we're out in nature, I mean, we've had pretty much like over a three-year barely interrupted camping trip. We've been outside a lot. (laughs) But you do start seeing things in terms of signs. Everything has a significance. It's not just like, oh, look, it's a rabbit. It's like, why is there a rabbit? Why today? Why at the same time as the towie? What's about to happen? Um... What has happened? What is this telling me? Is there a bear crossing through the bottom of the mountains? I just give that as an example, though. I don't think that's what it is because I don't think a bear would drive these animals uh, to risk human interaction. I think they'd be more worried about us. Mm-hmm. But it does have some significance. Most of the time, we don't know what it is. It could be a certain kind of weather coming. It could be anything. Yeah. But we know the significance is there. This is telling us something. So just like the other birds watching the towie, they kind of pop up their heads like, oh, the towie's disappeared. That's got significance. We watch the rabbit and the towie appear, and our heads pop up, and we're like, huh, I wonder why we just got visited. That's got significance. So, yeah. Is that everything you wanted to say about the towie? That is. And I've also, and Gumby has been visited by, um, as well, yellow jackets. It seems like this summer especially, we've had a lot of interaction with yellow jackets. And I got stung, like two or three times on my leg when I accidentally stepped on a yellow jacket's nest. And um, I got stung on my shoulder probably by a yellow jacket once. But you know what? I'm still friends with them. And they haven't been overly aggressive, even though in a lot of our camps we've had yellow jackets living. And when I stepped on one of the nests, it wasn't in our camp. It was on this unknown trail in the middle of the woods. Yeah, I was kind of feeling a little... uh... What would I say? A little like uh, superior to Teresa in a way about the yellow jackets because she was more skittish about them and she seemed to be more worried about them. So the yellow jackets would show up and I'd just kind of like try to wave them off. If they were really rude and wouldn't leave me alone, I'd kind of like, you know, actually pop them, you know, like not try to hurt them, but just like more aggressively like get. And they wouldn't sting me. I've learned that yellow jackets, unless you step on their nest, aren't don't aren't aren't as hostile as their reputation uh sometimes implies um so i was kind of feeling like i have more of an affinity with the yellow jackets than Teresa. but then she put me to shame the other day (laughs) we were sitting there eating i think sandwiches and uh the yellow jackets would keep getting on our food right now is what i call the september blood drive the insects get really bad at the end of summer um, I, I call it the blood drive because mostly I'm referring to the blood suckers, the little black flies, the little noceums, the mosquitoes. Mm-hmm. Depending on where you're at, there's probably some blood sucker, maybe ticks, that suddenly spikes around September. 
And it's because they're getting ready for winter. They're either going into hibernation, they're dying, they're feeding their young. Um, they feel an urgency. They feel autumn coming. And it's like, man, we got to move. We got no time. Like, we need to get that protein from the blood. We got to go in there and get it. We got to, like, protect our, our investments. Like, they're really aggressive. They're playing Wall Street out there. Yeah. Or in the case of the Yellow Jackets, a uh, ham sandwich. Yeah. Well, I was getting back to the Yellow oh. Jackets, but I want to explain why I call it the September Blood Drive, because it also uh, includes insects that don't steal our blood, like Yellow Jackets. They also are feeling this urgency. So for them, they're not interested in our blood. They're interested in our food. So as we're eating, suddenly more than any other time during the summer, we've been all over the place with Yellow Jackets close by. Now they're all over our food in a way they haven't been before. Really aggressive. So I've been swooped, like, you know, not bothered, kind of like, oh, yeah, I'm being cool with the yellow jacket, swatting them away and everything. But Teresa actually lets them take little pieces of their her food and has taught me that they will carve off like a little tiny piece of ham or bread or cheese and fly off with it. So if you just have a little patience with the yellow jackets... They just want a tiny little contribution. They're kind of like taking a tax from you, <laughs> which I feel like is kind of fair because we're in their home. How many generations have these yellow jackets inhabited this territory? So if all they're asking is like just to come on my plate, not come on my plate, but to, uh, uh, the, <laughs> no, I can't think of any other <laughs> well, way Well, they kind of look like they're humping your sandwich for a moment, but it's because they're tearing off a tiny little mouth, yellow jacket mouth-sized piece of food. Yeah, they hump off the ham. So all they want to do is take that little tiny bit that I'll never miss and fly off with it. They'll come back. But, Sometimes. But for a little while, I've, you know, you get a little bit of peace. So I was impressed with that. I've been trying to adopt what Teresa is doing. Um, just like, wow, can I just, you know, pause eating for a minute, let the yellow jacket take his little share that I'm not going to miss and then go back to eating. Um, and I just love that. I love that even after Three years in the van and so many more years before that, teaching nature class, classes, thinking of myself as a real nature guy, there's just still something so obvious to learn about a, a common interaction with a common insect that I see all the time. It's like, wow, here's a really easy way I can deepen my relationship with the yellow jackets. I can be more in harmony with the land around me. So that was a pretty powerful lesson. Thank you, Teresa. Oh, you're welcome. I think the yellow jack jackets taught me that because even before I was really like letting them eat some of the food on my plate, I would slow down. That was a big lesson because if you don't, you might get stung. You might agitate. Yeah, I, I knew the slowing down part. That's why I thought like, oh, yeah, I've got this figured out. But the sharing part is what I was missing. <laughs> yeah. So now what? Well, I got a lot to talk about, but jump in there if you want to take it in any other direction you want, Teresa. But uh, I wanted to uh, see if you wanted to say anything about Go Grocery. You had mentioned that the <laughs> other day. So Speaking of ham sandwiches, well, we met uh, actually a couple people uh, have told me about this place in the mountains of North Carolina. I don't think it's anywhere else, but it's called Go, which stands for Grocery Outlet. And everybody calls it Go Grocery. And it's only in a couple of... Mm, like bigger towns or cities in Western North Carolina. And at first when I heard about it, I was like, eh, eh it's just kind of like one of those mm, hodgepodge grocery stores that may or may not have what you want. And sometimes this stuff <laughs> is like even out of date and not a little bit. Like there was this one thing that was like 
guacamole salsa that was over a year out of date. But they were, you know, they were asking like 10 cents for it or something. <laughs> but, but they do have stuff that's not out of date. Or maybe it's like about to be out of date in a month or two. And the prices are fairly low, like a dollar or 50 cents or, you know, whatever, 25, 33 cents for things. So it's kind of like if a dumpster diver decided to open up a grocery store and sell the stuff from the dumpster. But it's also like a treasure hunt. I think, Gumby, those are your words. Yeah, one of the things you said that stuck with me the most about Go Grocery, um, and you probably have a store like this near you by another name, possibly. But uh, at first, Teresa just dismissed the store because you go in and you have like, I want to buy this thing. And it's not dependable. It's not dependable. They're going to have that thing. It's going to be up to date. It's going to be for a good price. But it's a fun store to go into to see what is offered. Almost, I'd say every time that we or you, Teresa, have gone in there, you found a treasure. There's something that's like, wow, I want that. Or there's something that you already knew you want, but like, wow, look at the price on that. Yeah. So if you just go in there more like looking for a treasure, like a, a fun store, rather than going in there for your five staples that you need to get, um, that's the kind of store it is. So mm-hmm. that's that's a little treasure we found in the mountains this, this summer. We don't have that down uh, in the lowlands. But. And it's really good for snacks because... As prices go up everywhere on basically everything, um, you can still, at the, at those locations, go grocery. You can find, like, bags of Terra, T-E-R-R-A, root chips that are usually, at Walmart, like $4 a bag for a dollar. And they're in better shape than the ones at Walmart. I don't know how, but they're, like, the bag's all full of air. You know, it's puffed up. You go to the ones at Walmart, and they look like... They came from the dumpster. Mm-hmm. Well, I took us to the aisles of Go Grocery. Well, where do you want to take us next, Teresa? Um, I guess I'll kind of segue into the uh, food pantry that we went to twice now. And this last time... Oh, can I uh, preface this? Okay. Okay, there's a little town called Spruce Pine. And uh, we really like this town. It's a small mountain town. It's one of those towns that are conveniently near the Blue Ridge Parkway. And... Uh, One of the first things we noticed about this town that was kind of a little off, a little strange, was we went (laughs) to this one park, and it seems to be the main park in town. Um, Riverside Park. Riverside Park. Um, I I think it's the main park in town because the couple of people that we just happened to, like, say good morning to or or get to know their face somehow, we all saw it. We saw them all in this park. So it has (laughs) to be the place to go. So we're doing the little walkway, and there's this... uh, book. We've, I've seen more of these. It seems to be a popular thing, but a book um, in Spanish with brown-skinned people, presumably Mexicans or South Americans, Latinos. Uh, we we used to call them Hispanic, but I don't know what the term yeah, is. Now. I know not to call them Latinx, so something other than that. Mm-hmm. But it's written in Spanish, and you can push a little button, and it will talk out loud to you. So, in a way, it's kind of cool. You know, I... I I've always thought it's kind of sucks that we're the one country that seems like we're less bilingual than it seems like any other country. Uh, I think it's cool that people learn other languages. But it does seem a little strange, you know, like here we've got our language that's the dominant language in this country. And it's just right there in the park. And it must have cost some serious money. Like I said, it's got a button that talks to you out loud. And I don't mean just one place. I mean, like, 
placed throughout the trail, like pages each, of this book. Yeah, each page has... Now, it had an English button and a Spanish button yeah. on two separate poles with a... Like, a giant brown metal pole with a little tiny silver button. Now, let me... Now, I, I don't want to get sidetracked here. That was no biggie. I thought that was kind of cool in a way, like I said. Just a little strange. <laughs> the thing that kind of puts it in a more negative context is the other part of the park for me. There's a big garden beautiful garden. And while we were there, we saw a bunch of young, white, mostly white, no, I'd say all white that I saw, um, young white people that were part of, I would presume, a church. Some of them were wearing like Christian shirts and stuff. And uh, they seemed to be the volunteers that upkept this park. Now, this garden. We were curious who the garden was for, so we went over there and there's a sign. Now, Christian garden connected to a park. Is it for the needy? Is it for the poor? Is it for the hungry people? No. It is for the Latino community. Just the Latino community, according to the sign. So I started getting, you know, I had a really bad reaction to that. I'm like, this is a, this doesn't strike me as a Christian value so much as a woke value. Here's the oppressed people. They need help. And the other people, well, you know, they've they've owned the world for hundreds of years. You know, like, they don't need help. They need to be, like, working in this garden and growing food for the Latinos for a change. Mm, I see the irony. Yeah. So it was like, and we're in the Appalachian Mountains, that if you look at uh, statistics, and Teresa looked this up, I think, a year ago, related to another podcast we were doing, um, one of the poorest groups, poorer than the national average for blacks or any other group in this country are whites living in the Appalachian Mountains. There's more poverty in that community than any other group that I'm aware of. And right in the middle of this is a garden growing food specifically for Latinos. Now, I'm going to say something. I know this is going to come as a shock to the audience, but I'm going to come as uh, say something that might be perceived as a little racist. I actually like Mexicans. I like Latinos. I favor that group. When I meet a Mexican, I have an immediate, without knowing their character or anything, a more positive reaction. I tend to like Mexicans. They smile. They're community-oriented. They share food often. They're, they're hard workers. You know, like, I have a high esteem for Mexicans, even, you know, and, and that's a prejudiced statement, even though I'm saying a positive thing because I'm making a blanket statement. Yeah, generalization. As if no, there's no assholes among the Mexican community. <laughs> it's equally prejudiced as saying I don't like another race, like Chinese, as if there's no good Chinese people. So I just wanted to put that out there because it's not about like, oh, I don't like Mexicans. It's about why are we targeting one group of people? One thing I have noticed about Mexicans is they're coming to this country as opportunists. Just like most of our ancestors did at one time. You know, like if you're white, your ancestors came here as opportunists. This is just the next wave of immigration. So, you know, a few generations along, if they don't go back to their own country, uh, the Mexican descendants will say the same thing. My ancestors came here as opportunists. There was opportunity here in America. They wanted to make money, and they are making money. They're buying new vehicles. They're getting uh, good jobs. And even the jobs that we might not consider that good – they can take it back to Mexico and send it back to their families, and it's worth like five times as much. They're making this work, and I don't, I don't fault them for it. Right. You know, I'm not saying— That's what people come to this country to do. Yeah, I have no problem. I would probably be doing the same thing. Now, that doesn't make me pro-open borders and everything, because then there's another problem, the competition. 
like then you just turn America into this like resource just to be exploited as if it was a field and there's a swarm of locusts. Something does need to be looked at there. Hmm, interesting. You know, I'm not pro just open the borders and let everybody in, but I'm also not uh, anti the people that come over the borders. They see an opportunity and just like most of the rest of us, they seize it. So I don't I don't hate on them for that. I do have a problem with the people that made this garden and selected one race of people and said, this is the race of people we want to help. I don't care if you're hungry. I don't care if you're poor. I don't care if you're needy. I care if you're hungry, needy, poor, Latino. No, I don't even care if you're hungry, poor, and needy. I care if you're Latino. Yeah. So that's the preface I want to give, which takes us to the food pantry at an otherwise really awesome Catholic church. And uh, yeah, if you could... uh, Share your experience there, and don't forget to leave out the details of that barefoot preacher. I thought that was pretty cool. Don't forget to leave it out? I mean, don't forget to include it. <laughs> okay. Okay, so yeah, we um, we went to this food pantry a couple weeks ago, and they gave me a, some more information that like the next week, because you could come every week, um, they're going to have not only a cookout with hamburgers and hot dogs and all the fixins, but they're also going to have this produce truck with fresh produce, um, as well as their regular food pantry. So it was going to be like a three-in-one stop. And, yeah. So did the food pantry inside. Awesome stuff. Um, They even had a little bit of produce at their food pantry. Got some hamburgers. Enjoyed that. Waited for the produce truck. And you get a number, and then you, you line yourself up by the number. And in front of me, um, there weren't too many people, and I was, like, number 13, lucky. Um, But in front of me, like, 1 through 12, there was only, like, 3 or 4 people. So there were two, um, you know, again, I'm going to say Hispanic because I don't know if they were Mexican, but they might be, but I don't know. Um, There were two Hispanic women. One was uh, older, like a grandma age, and one was, like, probably in her 30s. She had a baby on her back. And um, they were just waiting in line like everybody else. Can I interject something really quick? I hope I'm not derailing you because I know you're right in the middle of the story. But there's – I caught myself just doing this a minute ago, and I just heard you do it. Don't you feel kind of bad when you're saying, like, uh, I don't know where they're from. Maybe they're Mexican. Like, you're supposed to know. Like, there's kind of this pressure. Like, Yeah. Does that carry a little connotation of guilt? I was thinking about this the other day. Like, you go, you talk about a Native American, I'm not sure which tribe. Somebody's from Asia, and you're like, I'm not sure if they're from Korea or Japan. We feel bad, and we're made to feel bad in this growing woke woke culture. But it occurred to me the other day. (laughs) I think I know what you're going to (laughs) say. It occurred to me the other day that what if a person of color called me white, and I'm like, hey, I'm Scotch-Irish. Do you, just because I'm white, what, you don't know what country I'm from? Yeah. Like, who is distinguishing the Irish from the Scottish, from the English, from the German, from the Russian, from the, yeah. you know, the same thing is, well, like, all the white people of the world are just lumped into this one evil, insidious group, yeah. white. And yet, we are being taught to feel guilty because we can't recognize at a glance. Right. That this, where this darker skinned person is from, whether it's from Ecuador or Guatemala or Mexico. So I just wanted to throw that in there because that was a little piece of bullshit that I, uh, I caught myself thinking the other day of like, you know, 
that's a really one-sided thing that's kind of subtle. I think it's easy to miss. Yeah. So, I, you know, if I know where somebody's from, I'm not playing dumb, but I'm also not making it my area of study. I'm not going to, like, I've got so many other things I want to learn. I'm not doing whatever it takes to, like, you know, like, oh, you're from Guatemala. I can tell by that shoe you wear, you hmm. know, any more than they are like, oh, you have German heritage. I can tell by that little way you, uh, you know, say, I don't know, Heinz. <laughs> whatever the hell Germans say. I don't know. I'm just as bad with the white people as I am everybody else. I don't know where you're from either, whatever color you are. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So, um, again, in front of me, two Hispanic women, and uh, they were waiting in line. And I noticed that the older woman had two of the numbers in her hand, but I thought, well, maybe they're waiting on somebody to show up to claim that number. And... Um, so the food truck, the produce truck finally got there and set up and the produce was absolutely beautiful. Like the freshest corn I think I've had in decades and just a lot of other things, bell peppers. There were, um, bananas, organic bananas. I don't think I've ever bought organic bananas cause they're too expensive, but here they are cases and cases of organic bananas as well as other produce. And so um, these Hispanic women are, you know, going through the line and the younger one asks one of the volunteers, uh, how many can I have? And this volunteer, young white woman, oh, I'm not sure where she's from, probably in her 20s. She's like, oh, you can take as much as you want. And so um, they were, you know, going along, taking tomatoes and stuff. And uh, they got to towards the end of the line and the bananas and the young woman like pulled up their giant brand new looking Ford F-250 with like uh, the name of their remodeling company on the back window and started loading up cases of bananas, like the entire box of bananas, not like one or two bunches or even 10 bunches. I mean like the box, the whole entire giant box. And so one of the, um, like priests or whatever for the church came over and I guess he had noticed and, and the other volunteers had it. And he was like starting to ask people like, all right, how many of these bananas do you want? And right near the bananas, the, uh, the older lady, the older Hispanic lady, she was taking boxes of jalapenos and the priest was like, no, 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 no. You can have some, but we need to share. And the old Hispanic woman was like, she said in Spanish, which I studied, but I really have um, very little ability to speak anymore. But she said, Americans don't like spicy. And that was her justification for not sharing the boxes and boxes of jalapenos she was taking. And the priest, to his credit, did say, well, I happen to like spicy food and I'm American. But nobody else really spoke up. But I was the next one in line and I took like six jalapenos because I like spicy too. But uh, I thought it was very interesting. I had to tell Gumby this story because um, nobody else in the line was taking that much. And it just seemed like, huh, it's really strange that um, nobody said anything, at least until the end of the line there with the bananas. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Gumby, you got anything else you want to say? Oh, oh, and the priest. He was barefoot. 
And uh, somebody asked him, like, where are your shoes? And he said, I gave them up 25 years ago for Lent. Yeah. Yeah, I have my good days and bad days, and, uh, you know, there are days when I'm just not up to dealing with people at all. I, like, hang out in the van, and Teresa goes, like, in these food lines and stuff. Um, So I wish I'd have felt more social that day, because that sounds like an interesting guy. (laughs) I would like to have known, like, wow, when you gave him up, have you actually not worn a shoe at all for 25 years? I mean, and a preacher, you know, so presumably he's going to church and, and preaching and everything barefoot, which... Awesome. Yeah. Last time I went to church, I went barefoot. I was really? trying to make a point. Yeah. It was a long time ago. I think I was teenager, early 20s. But yeah, somebody talked me into going to church and uh, we went in there and uh, I don't remember if my friends were barefoot. Uh, I think actually Shannon, who writes in sometimes and has given us donations, listens to this podcast. I think she was with me, but uh, we might have both been barefoot. But we walked in there, yeah, and uh, they were really nice, to their credit. I thought I was going to make this big point about, you know, God made the ground and everything, and so I want to touch the God's creation. But no, they just gently asked, like, you know, why are you barefoot? And when I explained it, they were like, wow, okay. Yeah. They were actually welcoming. They were trying to walk their walk. So that was a, a good experience in church. But regarding your story, um, I remember you said, like, they had, like, the nicest truck, these uh, Mexicans. I don't yeah. know if they're Mexican. But yeah, they, they were not struggling any more than anyone else. And this, I relate these two events to the park and to this because I think they're connected. This growing wokeism, it's divisive. and It's racist. It's racist. It is blatantly <laughs> racist. What we should be doing is coming together and like, I don't give a damn what you look like, what color you are. If you're hungry, please come in. Oh. But this these Mexicans, uh, I would assume... And I'm making an assumption here. I am I am jumping jumping to some conclusions here, but live in a community where there's things like a garden specifically for them, as if they're the only people that need help. They need help simply because of their race and that they everybody else is like just doing fine and owes them something. I think this attitude that we're pumping the flames on. White, guilty people, shut up. You owe everybody because of something your ancestors maybe did. And I say maybe because we all damn know not every white person 100 years ago or 200 years ago owned a slave, was rich, was doing anything that any other race of people wasn't doing. Um, so something your ancestor might have done makes you guilty. You shut up and you you it's your job to cater to everyone else, no matter how rich they actually might be. So, yeah, that's just that was sad. And another uh, another point to the minister's credit, he did say to the Hispanic women, when everyone has had their turn, if there are any left, you can come back and get them. So he wasn't holding back. He wasn't trying to be like, no, no, we're going to let this produce just, no Americans are going to take it. You know, we're just going to let it go bad because, no, you've had enough. No, he said, we share. We're coming together to share this food. Yeah. This is our third episode coming back from our uh, supposed retirement of doing podcasts. (laughs) And there's a couple things that keep coming up. So I want to address one of them. One of them is Christianity. Um, yeah, because of Teresa reading the New Testament and everything, we've been really re-exploring uh, Christianity. So that, we're not going to church or anything like that. Yeah, we're, we're not, neither one of us plan on becoming Christian. We just find a lot of interesting things in this old religion that uh, happens to be around us. And the other is racism. So 
I want to try to clarify my view of racism. It's about time for us to cut to a break, but I'm going to try this before we do. I believe all of us are a little racist, and I believe that's okay. I think we see people as groups, and that has kept our ancestors alive, and it also helps us. If you see someone who fits every criteria of being a hoodlum, whether that's whatever their color is, you know, for you to make an assumption that there's a high probability based on that, that you better be extra careful around them, that's fucking smart. That's just smart. For you to see a businessman and uh, expect him to, like, be exploitative, maybe arrogant, uh, (laughs) rude. Of any color. Of any color. The problem is when we can't let go of those assumptions. That's gotten all mixed up, I believe. So to make assumptions, to see things in that group kind of way is good. It helps you make quicker decisions, move faster, do things. To hold on to those when the evidence goes against the contrary, that's the problem. And to condemn any group, as in you're going to attack them, you're going to cause them physical or any other kind of violence, that's not justified. That stands by itself. Violence attacking anybody for racist or any other reason. It's the violence we should address. Not whether they see somebody as a group or, you know, that's my view on racism. And so that's one of the problems I have with this whole woke thing, why I keep hitting that same nail on the head is I really believe there we are being taken in the very opposite direction of where we need to go. We need to recognize we're all different people. We come from different places. We've all come from intergenerational trauma of one kind or another. We've all come from people who have been displaced, who have been struggled, erased. erased. Uh, hell, if you're Scotch-Irish, the first white settlers on, on these shores, you were largely um, indentured servants. The first reservations were created for your ancestors in, in Ireland. You were coming from intergenerational trauma. To focus on one group as if they have it and the other group as if it's been Candyland for the last fucking thousand years is nonsense. <laughs> yeah, It's yeah. utter fucking nonsense. And the sooner we let that go and quit focusing on here's the race that needs help, here's the race that owes everybody, then we can start looking at human problems. And that's what we have. We have human problems. And if you get together with any group of people, if they're not fucking woke, So that usually means uh, poor people, not the little actually privileged people, but poor people. You know, you get on a job, you're working with black people, Mexicans, white people. They all know they have common causes. This shit doesn't come up. Not the way it does on college campuses with the actual privileged people of all kinds of skin colors. And even them, you know, I, I am. it's tempting to, you know, here's the privileged people. They also come from families with intergenerational trauma. So, any anything you want to say about your views on racism since I opened that door? Well... There's so much there to explore that I feel like I trip over my words. But, you know, if somebody asks me if I'm racist, I'm, uh... I don't know how to answer anymore. Because like I just said, I think we're all, uh... We're all collectivist in a way. Maybe you have tried so hard that... Uh, this is what happens to a lot of white people nowadays on the left... You have tried so hard to address your racism that now you see race just as strongly as any racist does, but now you grovel before people of color. You believe they are all oppressed. They all you, you are eager to make friends with them. 
Whereas a white person, you're like, eh, white person. You're still racist. You're still seeing skin color first. So, you know, I don't know how to answer that anymore. We all gravitate towards groups. If you're a liberal, guess what? You're probably hanging out with liberals. You like sports? Guess what? A lot of your friends probably like sports. We all gravitate towards a group. Is it better to gravitate towards people that share your ideology rather than share your skin color? I don't know. I think it's probably better to kind of mix it up a little bit and, you know, try to learn about anybody that has a difference. But still, at the end of the day, it's natural to want to be around people that share common things with you. Okay. Sorry I interrupted you again. Well, that... That's fine. I know um, we're getting ready to take a break here. So I just want to say two things. First one is I was ignorant in a former podcast about um, food pantries. And since then, I have um, learned more about the uh, demographic of people that go to food pantries, especially up here in the mountains. And uh, I apologize to all those people who are working hard to, to make those food pantries happen. It's not, uh, it's not feasible for the elderly to like go and dumpster dive for themselves. It's just not. And so I had said in a former episode, like, why don't they just leave it in the dumpster and let people just, you know, be free and get their own stuff because there's 86 year old women that can't dumpster dive. That's why. See, I believe in both. I wish I wish the dumpsters were unlocked for the people that could and would choose to scavenge. Mm-hmm. But I am glad that food pantries are offered for people that, like you said, it would be harder for or impossible. Exactly. And then just one other thought, and it's a little bit of a downer, but maybe it's a wake-up call too. Y'all Wokey's about to start a race war. So um, when we get back, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that in a different context. But um, yeah, there... For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. So you might want to stop your bullshit. That's all I got. Yeah. Okay, we're cutting to a break. And now a word from our sponsor. It's almost election season, and the Democratic Party wants you to vote blue. Yes, it's more important than ever as Democrats tirelessly battle against institutional racism. We finally hope to challenge the tyranny of old white men with our candidate, Uncle Joe Biden. He's older and whiter than anybody. Fight fire with fire, eh? But wasn't Joseph Stalin's nickname Uncle Joe? Not according to our fact-checkers. And disagreement is fascism. Many of you may be unaware of the proud history of the Democratic Party, beginning with its founder, President Thomas Jefferson. Democrats have always adored oppressed colored people. I believe that's people of color. Not according to our fact checkers. Thomas Jefferson, for instance, loved black people so much that he had a collection of them numbering in the hundreds. It was Jefferson's and the Democratic Party's love of the First Nations people that caused them to support the Indian Removal Act and to preserve our red children on reservations, or, as we like to call them, Native American resort communities. We understand that even when other groups and races don't always know what's best for themselves, we do. Now, sometimes you'll hear people criticize the Democratic Party for opposing the emancipation of enslaved colored people of color. Well, I'm here to tell you that it was their love and deep connection to their sun-kissed sisters and brothers that caused them to hold on so tightly, so lovingly, for so long. But weren't a few Democratic presidents members of the KKK? Hey, we've all been guilty of questionable behavior, even a rape or three. But identity shaming isn't our policy. We hate hate. And saying otherwise is hate speech. 
which we hate. But we shame and accuse people of rape all the time. Not according to our fact-checkers. When we do it, it is called speaking truth to power. To say any different is victim-blaming. Today, we, the Democratic Party, from the security of our inclusive gated communities, continue to celebrate our long association with oppressed peoples. Unless they're white. Those white devils can burn in the Christian hell of which I am far too educated and progressive to believe in. I can confidently say that all white people are evil, and all black people are noble and 100% right about everything. For here at the Democratic Party, we train ourselves daily to judge people not by the content of their individual character, but by the much more visible and reliable color of their skin. This is how you fight racism. But what about Mark Robinson or Clarence Thomas? They're white. Holding any other view is a microaggression. But... It is urgent that we stop the conservative extremists from keeping our colored children from exercising their science-given right to vote. Look, we all know that those people are incapable of figuring out how to acquire a free ID in this evil racist society. Why, I've even seen neighborhoods where good, young, colored men are apparently even denied the basic human right to purchase a belt. Is it really so silly to see a less intelligent, inferior race, weak, helpless, struggling, without their great white gender nonspecific parents, and to yearn to reach out my trembling hand to help? Um, everything you just said was kind of racist. Not according to our fact checkers. Black lives matter, which is why so many of our liberally supported policies strive to keep so many people of color safe and snug within the protective walls of our penitentiaries and institutions. Expressing other opinions is a form of gaslighting. If we were crazy, I assure you, we'd be more than happy to let everyone know it. We support diversity and inclusion. Unless you're not one of us. Then we hope you die. We support my body, my choice. As long as you make the right, approved of choice. Bodies making wrong choices will be publicly shamed, canceled, prevented from basic human rights, and confiscated by the state for re-indoctrination. And the Republicans and insurrectionists will stop at nothing to ruin our good name. They've even accused us of hating babies, which is ridiculous. Hateful. And an actual point of fact, a form of literal physical violence. We love fucking babies. I mean, we fucking love babies. Even gross unborn ones. Here at the Democratic Party, why, just this morning, I used a precious little fetus to wax my electric car, and I gotta tell you, you've never seen such a brilliant shine on a Prius. Hmm. We use fetuses to keep our skin looking young. We eat fetuses with hummus, inject them for medicine. Hell, I've even been known to freebase a fetus or two. No one loves babies like we do here at the Democratic Party. I believe we also champion women's rights, but that's currently pending. A team of our own specially selected biologists is working around the clock in our labs in an effort to unravel that age-old riddle and to finally determine what a woman actually is. I'm pretty sure we'll be for them unless it offends someone. We'll keep you updated. We often champion causes that no one believes in. That whole Latinx thing, for example. We believe in following the science. Our science. Any other science or scientists are dark-age, backwards, deplorable plague rats, like those anthropologists, psychologists, and the rogue free-thinking biologists, who have always been right-wing conspiracy theorists. They hurt and offend science, and it is only through our unquestioning faith in science that we can ever hope to be downloaded into heaven. The Democratic Party has always been the party of unconditional love. Rainbows. All love is good love. We believe in love deeply, 
down to the core of where our souls would be. If your heart inspires you to pursue intimate relations with a child, a puppy, a child who identifies as a puppy, or an old man caked with makeup, perfume, who simply enjoys the feeling of a tiny, chubby, sticky hand down his pants, we will defend your goddess-given right to express that love. Hmm. Love trumps hate. We identify as being right about this. And we will continue to wage our heroic war against eco-villainy. Look, sure, we could just change ourselves. We could give up unnecessary luxuries that harm the environment. But we hold the deep conviction that addressing the faults in others will make us feel much better about ourselves. And let's face it, taking responsibility for ourselves is white privilege, and we are firmly anti-racist. So please, if you like the idea of imposing your will on others without their consent, under the threat of violence, get out to the polls. The tyranny of the majority can only work for you if you vote. And win. Or appear to win. It's only fair. Donate now to keep spreading this message. More government always makes everything better. For everybody. After all, we'll get your money in taxes anyway. But trust us, it goes down better if it feels voluntary. Together we can upright this upside-down, inverted, topsy-turvy world and put it right-side-up-down on its head again. This ad is approved of by wholesome butter-based white people. And we're back. We just took a little Bob Seeger break. Um, we crank the van every other day when we're in the woods because I've found that if I don't crank the van um, at least that much, uh, the battery will run dead. In the colder weather, we crank it more because we enjoy the heat, so we crank it every morning and evening, but in the summertime, we just crank it every other day, and I let five songs play, so our five-song lineup right now is Bob Seeger. <laughs> I forgot how much I like Bob Seeger. And... Uh, I wanted to point out that this is actually, we are winding up. We're leaving this place tomorrow night, and this is 10 days in the woods without having moved the van at all. Anything we've reached in those 10 days has been by foot, and we're way out in the uh, Pisgah Wilderness, the Linville Gorge Wilderness, and um, we've never done that before, I don't believe. I Not think, that long. Yeah, we've we've been out for two weeks, and you know, like I said, we've been basically camping for over three years. But we've had <laughs> like trips into town that breaks it up. But ten days has been the longest without taking a single trip into town, and uh. And you know, I feel like it's gotten easier. There's less cravings for me. I think we talked about that a little bit on the last podcast. That it's kind of easier to not miss town so much when things in town kind of suck so bad. And that's, you know, that's in general. It's not like the specific little nice things that are in town um, that we find. But, yeah, I'm not having, like, a whole lot of food cravings. Oh, right before we recorded the podcast, the first part, we had our little um, tortilla cheese pizzas that I've mm, been making. Mm. Oh, my God, those are so good. They are. Over the campfire. Yeah, and being out in the woods for 10 days, like this far out in the woods, uh feels a little surreal. I, uh, I, I'll hit these walls now and then, but not like I used to, you know, where you kind of feel a little, uh, stir crazy, mm -hmm. like cabin fever without the cabin. You kind of feel like, uh, I kind of want to just do something else. But I've noticed that, uh, they are very small waves now, like even calling them a wall. It's more like just kind of a moment of that that goes away and my feeling as this winds up is uh, more, not dread, dread's too strong of a word, but I'm going to miss this place. Like, I feel like I have more and more acclimated to being in the woods. Like, 
and I in mean, the eventually, mountains. yeah. And eventually we'd run out of food, you know, we'd get hungry and then we'd have a really good reason to go, go looking. But, uh, we've got a source of water. We've, you know, got basically <laughs> everything we need out here and it just feels really peaceful. And that peacefulness becomes such a, uh, a background that it's easy to overlook until you leave. And man, when I get into town, oh my God, it's just so overwhelming and more and more so. I'm more and more, I don't know if this is what rewilding feels like or if it's just, uh, you know, part of my wiring of uh, antisocial behavior or what. But uh, since I brought up water, let's go there next. Yeah, because last time we spoke with our listeners, we were doing this dry. Yeah, doing it dry. No Vaseline, baby. We were just going in there mm, like sandpaper. So we, uh, oh, you got a stink bug. It's like a little parakeet sitting on the shoulder. <laughs> All right, Stinky's got a crack. They're not as cute as yellow jackets. Yeah, I hope it's not the beginning of another plague. We've yeah. had the stink bug plague. but Oh, get it off of me because it's tickling. <sighs> Man, I don't want to touch your stink but Oh. No. All right. It has gone somewhere. It does not want to touch you either. All right, so um, a damn stink bug interruption. Nobody the else water. doing podcasts has to have stink bug interruptions. God no damn. one else gets to have stink bug interruptions. So when we got out here, we'd been here before. Um, we hadn't been at this exact campsite, but we'd been about like maybe five minutes away, if that, at another campsite close by. So we had a general idea of the area, and we knew that this would be unusual for us because we wouldn't have easy water. We always, just like the, you know, the little liberal signs in the yard, water is life. Water is life. So we almost always try to base ourselves near water. Water helps us do so many things. Easier, yeah. Uh, yeah, but we decided this time it's the end of summer, our last two-week campsite. We're going to try something. We're going to, like, be near this awesome view and, uh, you know, like, focus on the view and just test ourselves. How, what happens if we don't have a source of water? So, <laughs> ironically, we've known this place to be quite rainy. It was rainy when we got here um, and parked at a parking lot before we found the campsite. The very first day, we had a light shower, gathered, you know, a little bit of water off the tarps. It was a light shower. Not a single damn drop of water since. Yeah. So almost two weeks without water, which is, in our experience here, unusual. It's pretty dusty. Yeah, it's dusty. So... We are kind of wrapping our minds around that, and uh, one of the things I've learned to do, and I think I mentioned this before, is every other day I go on a long hike. So we do a 15-minute walk down the road every morning and every evening, 15 minutes back. So if we're on a road and there's no trails, that's just go one way on the road in the morning, go the other way on the road in the evening. If there's a trail, then maybe that's another one. But wherever the routes kind of dictate, we'll do 15 minutes away from camp, turn around, come back towards camp. And that gives us kind of a feel of about a half hour radius around our camp, walking Mm -hmm. distance. And it's it's usually, even with hills, it's usually somewhere around 0.6 miles. Yeah. Those are our resources within that 15 miles. It's where we gather firewood. It's where we pay attention to where the medicinal plants are. If one of us gets cut, where's the yarrow, for instance? Gets stung by a bee, where's the plantain? We pay attention really a lot during that 15-minute walk. Um... We scavenge the campsites in that 15 minutes. We kind of consider them part of our extended yard. But every other day, I've been going on a longer hike. So this has been really important, I've discovered this summer. Uh, 
I might spend, you know, I'd, we might spend up to four hours, two hours walking out, two hours walking back. But anyway, we found a source of water that was 40 minutes walking away down a really steep hill and, of course, back up a really steep hill. With the water. With the water. Jack so and Jill, man. It was doable, but it was kind of like, eh, we might do this as we need it, maybe once or twice a week to gather water because this is going to be grueling. Walking up this mountain for 40 minutes carrying a backpack full of water but it was a blessing right we were glad we were like we didn't know there was any water accessible now we're kind of excited well 40 minute walk it's it's something but you know we can do it and we're kind of looking at this site like it's a test i thought it was a test of survival what do you do without a source of water? What else do you know how to do? How can you make things stretch? Can you bathe every third day with just a little bit of water poured in a bowl, a little bird bath? Is that enough? Do you feel like you're getting dangerously unhealthy only bathing that much? Those kind of things. And for me, how do I cook? Like I mentioned, um, I think the first podcast back or, you know, what do I cook without water? How do I keep the dishes clean? How do I keep my hands clean? I mean, we use hand sanitizer, but yeah. Yeah. So we went on another one of our long hikes going the other direction from that 40-minute walk down to the water. Um, this is about four days ago. Two minutes past our turnaround point. Keep in <laughs> mind that, you know, like we walk 15 minutes and then I find some kind of landmark like, okay, this is 15 minutes out. This is where we turn around. We don't have to time it anymore. So every time we take a walk, it's like, oh, there's that weird drainage pipe or whatever. Here's where we turn around. So we walk this road. Now we're going to go past our turnaround point, walk really far, see what we can find. Two minutes past our turnaround point, <laughs> we find the most glorious, beautiful spring. So if you're not if you're not good at math like me, that's 17 minutes walking away from camp. And this is going up a hill. So when we fill up the water, we're coming downhill Woo-hoo! with our full water. It was <laughs> such a blessing. And it was really interesting. That just spurred on a lot of... Uh, insights for us and conversations like, well, I felt like I was being tested on how to do without water, but now here's water. So um, Teresa and I were like, I think we were being tested. Teresa thought our faith was being tested. And I thought maybe my, uh, how I do things was being tested, my strategy, you know, just assuming like, oh, I must be this far away from water and only two minutes out of my range. Like I said, the most, I mean, we see a tiny little cave, not big enough to crawl into, but it's like a tiny little cave where the water's actually coming out of the mountain. It's that close to the source. And it hasn't rained for two weeks and it's still pouring out like a faucet. I mean, plenty of water, beautiful, delicious water. We've been drinking untreated. It's just such a boon, such a blessing. So I'm like, wow, if I hadn't just explored just two minutes further, I'd just be clueless. I could have died of dehydration if, say, the van broke down or whatever just because I didn't explore two more minutes further. And how would I know? Yeah, and it's weird because it was uphill. So, Teresa, is there anything you want to say about feeling tested by uh, your faith tested? Well, it's kind of hard to explain because it's not, um, I mean, it's not like, you know, religious faith or anything like that. I guess it was kind of more like, well, we found water 40 minutes away, and we were grateful for that. And then we find this even better, like, amazing source of water that's even closer. And I don't know. I don't know what else to call it other than just, like, 
I have gratitude. And to me, it's a reminder to have faith. I don't know how to to say it otherwise. I would almost consider it a religious faith because that's one of the things <laughs> I began thinking of at the spring and you brought up the word I was going to bring up, gratitude. Mm-hmm. I think the foundation of all good religions, and maybe every religion has the possibility of being a good religion, is gratitude. It's a way to keep feeling thankful. Uh, God, you know, Teresa and I have talked about, do you believe in God? Do we believe in God? And to me, that's the wrong question. It doesn't matter so much whether you actually believe there's a God, whether you picture an old man or uh, a big orb of light or whatever. It doesn't matter if you believe in the God. The question is, how does it affect your life to believe in a God? Does believing in a God cause you to live better or does it cause you to be a worse person? So, to me, kind of personifying this universe in a word, God, kind of gives a focal point for my gratitude. I've got somebody to thank. I've got somebody to feel like, oh, this is a challenge. Who issued the challenge? God. I have no fucking idea what that means. (laughs) I don't know what that means, but it gives me a focal point. Just like when I meditate and I follow my breath, the breath itself is important and it isn't important, but it's a focal point. So, yeah, that that spring reminded me of gratitude. Was I felt gratitude before I found the spring. I felt gratitude when I ha- I thought I'd have to walk 40 minutes up a mountain because of the water that I found that was close by. And then to find the spring of fresh water just floods a flood of gratitude, a flood of thankfulness. It was a religious moment for me. Mm-hmm. It was definitely a religious moment for me. And you mentioned in the first part of this episode about the, um, the signs and what the morning before we found the spring. Yeah. There was this, go ahead. No, go ahead. I've, I've talked a lot. You tell it. There was this, um, couple that were camping and because we have Sherlock, you know, there's like a dog at their campsite. So we kind of have to be careful. You know, they don't get in a fight or whatever. And the guy was just getting ready to leave in his pickup truck from the campsite. And his girlfriend and the dog were still there. And we walked maybe, I don't know, three to five minutes more past their campsite and then walked back. And as we're walking past their campsite, back to ours, we see this guy in the truck. And he thought that for for whatever reason, he thought that like his dog had followed us and it was actually Sherlock, our dog. Anyway, the point being, he said, oh, I went to go get water. I thought like you were waving because my dog had rolled in something and that's why I was going to get water because he stinks. And anyway, bye. I was like, how very bizarre that he had to like spell all that out. And then we were looking at each other puzzled, like where the hell did he go that fast to get water? I mean, he's got a pickup truck, but this road is rough. I don't think unless he was going 60 miles an hour and had somebody with water waiting at the end of the road, could he come back that fast? So when we found the spring, we were like, uh. <laughs> yeah, and because of that clue, you know, like depending on your view of, I don't know, life, signs, significance, that might just be like a random event. Like, oh, that's funny. But for us, I, I feel like more and more we're finding significance in things that happen, signs. So that was such an important clue. Like Teresa said, we pass people all the time and don't don't 
exchange a word. We're respecting them at their campsite. A lot of people come out here because they just want to be out with nature. They're not trying to bring people in and talk to them. But that one series of events just happened to be that guy mentioning, I went to get water. It was such an important clue. Yeah. So when we found the spring, we suspected we might find water somewhere nearby. We just didn't no, we would. So it still came as a surprise. But yeah, that was really uh, <laughs> important, I felt, a bit to have received that clue. And again, feeding into that kind of religious feeling. Um, I don't like to get bogged down in God because it gets into just stupid, stupid debates. Um, I've mentioned before, I read the whole chapter, St. Matthew chapter 6, but one of the things that's said in St. Matthew chapter 6 is when you pray, do it in private. When you uh, talk to whatever you want to call God, it's between you and that. Like, don't parade it out in front of everybody. And, uh, man, I'm seeing the deeper lesson in that right now of, like, um, you know, whatever I mean by that, it's the feeling. It's the way that it causes me to interact with this world that's important. It's not when I say it, whether you start feeling like, oh, there's no God. Oh, he's a Christian. Oh, he's a he's a whatever this or that. That's not important. It's what it does for me. Right. Yep. That's the important part. So that religious feeling of like, here's a sign, here's a clue, here's a guidance, here's a challenge, here's a gift. Gifts after gifts after gifts, so many gifts. And uh, I can say after these two weeks, after this summer, um, I just feel really tuned into the gifts. There is such abundance. I feel like these mountains more than ever before feel so very livable. I could live up here. There's so many resources. We found find more every summer. We push ourselves further. And um, I am just so thankful, so thankful for all the gifts. And that's one of the things when I look around at the society we're trying to escape that's missing. Mm-hmm. People don't realize how abundant what's already here is. Even if they do in theory, if you don't move towards living that, it's just theory. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't move you. Um, yeah. Indeed. Any other thoughts on the spring? Well, I think you summed it up really well. I just wanted to, um, add my little practical tips that'll take hopefully not that long. Practical tips about what? Uh, if you didn't have a lot of water, a lot of water. Well, let me say one more thing about the spring. One question that came up is we're at the top of a mountain. I mean, the top of a mountain up here on a ridge. And there's water after two weeks of no rain (laughs) flowing out of the top. And so please write in if you know what this is. Maybe I'll do some research myself. But the question arises, what force is it that pushes that water up? I mean, evaporation? That doesn't make sense. Gravity's pulling it down. Right. What constant force is pushing water to be gushing up from a spring all the way up a mountain, way above the water table? I just realized that's a really basic, important thing that uh, I don't know. So there's a nature mystery for you. Indeed. And now practical stupid bullshit with Teresa. Um, <laughs> let's bring it down a notch into the mundane. Yeah, let's let's talk about householding things. Um, yeah, if you're cooking, um, I had mentioned in a previous episode, try to get meals that don't require water. That's pretty good, like sandwiches or tortilla pizzas. Oh, my God, those are so good. Um, but also using the water that is, that's from cans of stuff. So maybe you don't have extra water, but can you throw in a can of 
green beans or corn or something that'll work with your meal that has liquid in it so that you don't have to use your precious water. And it could impart a um, delicious green bean flavor. Mm. And uh, something else I do is reuse the water. So if I do have some water and I make spaghetti, for example, or mac and cheese, that water I'm just dumping out after the pasta, I could actually use that to hard boil some eggs or to help me clean up some dishes that maybe are like greasy because it's still the warm, hot water. Um, and one other thing, I, I did this up on the parkway because I was trying to conserve water. Cooking order, the order in which you cook things, I think it's an art form. I think cooking is an art form. I didn't have this much respect for it before, but like deglazing your pan Hell, that makes it so much easier to keep things clean and not have to scrub pans for an hour. So yeah, just consider, like I made um, barbecued chicken first in a big kind of pot pan, like a flat pot. And then I cooked up some potatoes au gratin. And then for the last thing I did, I made, uh, I think I made green beans. So the water from the green beans cleaned out everything else. And then I just had like a little piece of paper towel from the probably grocery store or something bathroom, and I wiped out the liquid, and voila, clean. Mm -hmm. Good tips. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and I'd say one of the underlying things that, you know, Teresa's talking about there is uh, minimal water and, like, seeing what other uses you Mm -hmm. can have for it. Like that whole idea of gray water, black water. Like sometimes water, you'll use it for something, and then you'll still have water, but you don't want to use it for that thing anymore, like washing your body. But maybe it's, like, good for something else. So, yeah. And educational. Where do you mm-hmm. want to go next? Um. Well, let's see. Did you have... I'm thinking the tranny at the view. Oh, okay. That sounds good. Uh, there was a tranny at the view. No, Um. the other night we walked up to this beautiful overlook. And uh, it was a little more crowded than usual. A little more crowded was, like... Starting with the first one. What? All right. All right. Let let me let me start at the beginning. So about a week ago when we went into town, oh, 10 days. Oh. Yeah. See? You're missing it. So we actually have encountered two uh, trannies at this Wiseman's View. <laughs> That's why I got confused. And, you know, the significance of this, uh, I hope to elaborate here. We went out in the morning, and, um, you know, we're out there. We're the only people out there. We left Sherlock in the van. We're watching the sun rise on this glorious view. I'm making coffee. And this guy, yeah, Teresa's making coffee on our Coleman stove. And this guy comes out, and first we hear this really neurotic little dog that's just barking his head off at us. And this guy comes out. and Well, I thought it was a kid at first because of my perspective looking down the sidewalk. I can't really describe it, but it looked like a kid that had on like a cowboy outfit or something, but like a really strange cowboy outfit. Like well, that, a superhero cowboy. That, in fact, is not what this person was wearing. But he came out, and uh, he walked up with the little dog, and he's like, he's got this really scraggly hair. He's dressed like, if a woman was dressed like that, I'd think, man, this is a tramp. Like, she just, like, just uh, like earned some money at the truck stop and they just booted her out someplace and she's got a hangover. I mean, it's the trashiest feminine outfit. And like the guy like kind of squatted down to get his dog. And like I saw way more than I wanted to see, way more than I should have had to see really. Um, But my point is, 
You know, Teresa and I really are opposed to the wokeism for many reasons, and a lot of that wokeism is involved in the trans movement. Um, there's a big invasion of people, not just that want to live the way they want to live, but that are imposing their view on others to the point where they're saying, you have to see me as a woman, even though I'm obviously a man. So ideologically, right away, this guy and me are complete opposites. I don't approve of his view, and he probably wouldn't approve of mine. But the thing I wanted to talk about here is he was extraordinarily polite. Oh, yeah. He came, and even though I'm like, what a shitty outfit to be wearing, even a woman wearing that outfit, and you're a man dressed as a trashy, slutty woman in scanty clothes, you know, I will freely admit that my uh, reaction to that is revulsion. I don't want to see a guy dressed like that. Hell, I don't even really want to see a woman dressed like that. I find it uh, nasty. And But this person conducted themselves with good manners. They're like, I'm sorry my dog was barking. I didn't mean to interrupt your morning. And we're just like, oh, that's fine. Now, the left is getting people worked up into such a fraud that I would imagine a lot of transsexuals are getting feeling like they're under such fire that if they go in the mountains and meet some person that lives in the mountains, they their safety is endangered. These people are after them. That's not what's actually happening out in the world. We all have differences. There's a lot of other people other than trans people that could have walked up that I would have been like, man, I wouldn't want to like really sit around and have a beer with this person. Yet, if they show up and they're acting like they are concerned with why I'm there, they're sorry if they interrupt. We can be civil to each other. Yeah. We can get along just fine. We may even, if there's grounds for it, see past our differences. If this guy continued to act that way and for some reason we had to interact with him longer, I might start less seeing this trashy dress, this image he's conveying that, well, of course I'm going to see that image. That's what he's conveying. Right. When you dress a certain way, i got to take responsibility for the way I dress, too. I dress like a homeless person a lot. Holes <laughs> in my clothes, shabby clothes. I get, you know, consequences for dressing like that. So does he. But if we treat each other with respect, just as human beings, suddenly that stuff starts moving to the back burner more and more. You know? It's not just like a bunch of mountain hillbillies are out to lynch the tranny. <laughs> and this guy knew it. He didn't show up with fear. He didn't show up like, ooh, you know. He just showed up with like, oh, here's another human being. I'm sorry I interrupted their morning. I recognize my dog's being loud. And we're like, wow, I really appreciate that he recognized that. And he went off and watched the sunrise. And we both got to share this view watching the sunrise. Yeah. And he even, like, mentioned we'd already seen, like, the uh, the more ru uh, rugged, wild overhanging rocks but you know he went down there with his dog and when he came back he's like have you guys been back there like it's really beautiful and we had but i appreciated that he wasn't just you know being standoffish and and strange yeah although who am i to judge strange but you know yeah i really didn't need to see his little wiry bulge in his panties but you know I, it goes a long way to be polite i can even overlook that it turns out hmm. so just was it last night Yes. Yes. Last night, <laughs> it's such a interesting contrast because now it's the evening. We're taking a walk and we're going to the same view and it's uh, pretty busy. Um, and right before us, these two people get out. One looks like a student, and I think we found out he was a student from uh, Appalachian State. And this 
old man gets out that looks like Teresa described him as looking like an, an old English man or something. He's got the little old English man glasses. He's dressed in this weird mustard yellow tan like plaid shirt and like kind of corduroy looking pants. Everything about him looks like a caricature of a old eccentric professor, except for the hair. <laughs> the hair is this weird bob cut. I believe it was his real hair. It looked like it. Yeah. It was this weird, just horrible haircut where it's just cut across the bangs like a, a an Asian girl or something, like a stereotype of one, and then like long to his shoulders and cut straight, like just this like uh, Miss Swan from Mad TV. <laughs> but 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 dyed three different colors. Yeah. Again, my first reaction. Especially with an older person. Younger person, we all did crazy shit. I used to have these jeans and I didn't wear underwear that didn't have an ass. My ass was hanging out of these jeans. I look back now and I can see where people are like, man, I don't want to fucking see that. Where I could have got a, a hostile reaction, but being young is being stupid. You try things. There's, there's got to be a little forgiveness there. Like, eh, they'll hopefully learn. That was last year. When I see an old person like that, yeah, <laughs> that was an accident last year. When I see an old person like that, I have a more negative reaction. I admit it. I'm not even, I'll explain why, but I'm not trying to justify it. It just is. This is just my reaction. Mm-hmm. My feeling is how sad that you're at that age and that your way of trying to stand out to create an identity for yourself and to get attention is such a juvenile, wokey way. You should be guiding the kids. You shouldn't be becoming the kids. Hmm. So that was my first gut reaction. Now, like I said, what I do, I have a reaction to somebody. You know, this ties in with the racism we were talking about earlier. I don't have that kind of reaction towards a race of per- people. I'm not, I wasn't raised to uh, view skin color that strongly. I do have a reaction because of events and because of wokeism and cancel culture and so many other things. I do have that reaction to the trans community. I do. It just is. But I'm not going to hold it against them. If they're polite after that, we don't have to have a problem. You want to ask my views on stuff? I'll share them. If you can hear other views that you disagree with, we still don't have a problem. This guy, Teresa, ever the talkative person, which (laughs) in a way I kind of admire, in a way I kind of like, oh my God, is she going to talk to every person on this trail? Well, the the student had... I admit. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. (laughs) The student had this weird... I don't know, like a pole or something thing sticking out of a backpack, and I didn't know what it was. It was really bizarre looking. It was very bizarre looking. And then, of course, the old man is really bizarre looking. Yeah, I'm like, what the hell is happening here in front of me? So when I saw the really fancy, expensive movie camera, I was like, oh, are you guys making a film or something? And the... The student just kind of looked at me. Well, not exactly. You said, are, are you making a... What are you guys doing? Oh, and uh, the, the I'm going to call him the trainee, the, the woke guy, the old guy, um, he was like, well, we're making a documentary with my, uh, this is a extraordinaire filmmaker or whatever. And that's fine. So I went on further to ask him, what's the documentary about? You know, I'm curious. Here's this weird backpack. Here's this weird looking guy. I'm not trying to make him feel bad or anything, but like, what could this documentary be about at Wiseman's View? And this is where the student oh. dismissed us. He just looked like 
superior. It was the it was the most fucking infuriating look. I wanted to go over there and punch the little punk's fucking face because it was just this condescending like you wouldn't understand anyway and he looked like he couldn't answer me and just looked to the trans person like do you want to demean yourself with trying to answer this basic common question it had that kind of feel to it Mm -hmm. so the guy said something about lights at wiseman's view the brown mountain lights which we've been interested in so i was like cool we we saw one the other night we think we did He's like, really? Where? Or when? And I said, you know, the other night, and uh, we just ran into this couple down the road. There's this other overlook, and they say that is the best place. We just happened that morning to have run into this couple that gave us all this information about the Brown Mountain Lights. And they're like, this is the place to go. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, these guys are making a uh, documentary about that. Yeah. I want to share that. They might find that interesting. Immediately, this guy, it's like he takes the conversation of like, well, they're really good to see here. It's like he wasn't interested in any other information. He was already the expert. <laughs> and immediately, without my trying to do this, it felt like he framed it like I was trying to give him another place to be, like I didn't want them to be at our overlook or something. That's the way I felt. <laughs> I, I will admit, I don't know how much of that was in my head, but Teresa and I both agreed, and Teresa tends to be a lot more friendly than me, that these guys are both coming off really rude. And just, and rude and awkward. You know, there's, you can, you can kind of with a rude person just be like, fuck you. But it was like, am I misinterpreting? They're so, both of them were so awkward and just didn't seem to know how to communicate with other people at all. I don't know why. Maybe it's Appalachian State. I don't know. When I see people dressed like that, it's obvious to me that there is a mental illness being displayed. Now, as I've said before, I think we all have different kinds of mental illness. So as long as you can act right, not be an asshole, all right, I won't hold that against you. But in my own opinion, when you're uh, dressed like a trampy woman and you're an old man dressed with like that, there's some kind of deep mental illness going on. There's some kind of real foundational emptiness that you're trying to fill with a made-up, over-exaggerated identity. Um, There's something disturbing, and I often... When I deal with people that choose to portray themselves, that choose to create an image to broadcast to the world that looks like that, if I engage with them, I will get that sense. It's like they're on some kind of weird drug or there's something missing. Yeah. It's just like they're, they can't engage. It's not just that they look different and they will tell themselves that's why that's what happened you hated them you hated that you could you you were so stuck in your binary thinking or you're whatever a transphobe. but no what i'm reacting to is you should you're a fucking rude dick <laughs> so we go down there and they do their little documentary thing and they continue to just kind of broadcast this aura you know other people are coming down there and they're just like you know uh, it's it's a real subtle kind of like we're from the college and we're better than you. And and they you know. don't have anything, you know, blocked off. They're just kind of taking over this one area of the overlook where people come to see the evening. And and we were just kind of sitting up on a rock and uh, observing. And again, if someone has a documentary they're making, you would think that they would be passionate about what they're talking about. It sounded like this professor or whoever he was with the hair lost a bet Mm -hmm. it's like he was just rambling about like you know these are the mountains behind me and linville gorge and they have camping here and um 
you know, there's, there's, uh, there's really, you know, uh, there might be an airport over there. It's like, what are you, is, is this what the documentary is going to be like? Cause there's going to be heavy editing needed. And it's such a juvenile thing to do. Back in the 90s, we didn't have the trans people. I didn't have any friends that were suddenly dressing as women and all this. But we did have a similar, like, dress as outrageous. We had goth. We had stuff like that. But dress as outrageous as you can to get attention and then resent everybody for looking at you like you're strange (laughs) when you tried to dress as strangely as you possibly could. That's a juvenile, stupid fucking way to get attention and, and stir up drama. To see an old man do it just... Yeah, I have a really, it's obscene. I have a bad reaction to that. Yeah. But again, we bring up these two stories because I want to point out that the one interaction, I have my own prejudices. I have my own things I like, things I don't like. People dressing like that, I don't like it. But what really sets the, the relationship that we would forge on its first footing, are you rude? Okay, you're black. Are you cool? Are you about to show us that like you're uh, a decent person that cares about other people? Or are you a fucking self-righteous asshole that thinks everybody owes you something? Are you white? Are you fucking working on like hating everybody and acting like you're better than somebody and throwing around vulgar words every chance you get? Or are you kind, reserved, uh, open the door for people? That's the basic thing. Do you have human decency? Whatever else you feel like you got to do with your life, how you got to dress, what's underneath it, how are you conducting yourself? You're portraying an image. You're going to have consequences for that. But even underneath that, do you have basic common human decency, etiquette, courtesy? Yeah. 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 Anything else you want to say? Some um, say. Some say. Yeah. I. I just mainly. Uh, it will be interesting to see if that documentary ever becomes a thing. Because uh, I am interested in learning more about the subject of the Brown Mountain Lights. And uh, to see that extraordinaire documentarian kid pull off uh, making that guy look like, eh, I don't know, he knows what the hell he's talking about and he's interesting, that's going to be magic. Yeah, the guy was boring as shit <laughs> in addition to everything else when they were shooting this thing. But that's, uh, that's really all I've Another funny sidebar as we're sitting there. And, of course, like I said, Teresa's got to talk to everybody. So they're over there on our right <laughs> starting to shoot their documentary, you know, trying to find the view. Over here on our left is this guy and girl, and the girl's, like, taking pictures of the view. And Teresa gets to talking about the uh, um, Brown Mountain Lights. And so the guy, without knowing these other guys are shooting a documentary, starts talking shit about this other documentary, documentary and how stupid it was and how they got everything wrong. And, you know, it was really funny because we're, like, sitting there knowing that the other guys are shooting the documentary. It's like, oh, boy, we're th- this is kind of awkward and kind of hilarious. But, uh, all right, we are out of time, but there's one thing that I'm going to be upset about if we don't at least brush on, and that's that, that couple I just mentioned. Oh, yeah, sure. They gave us all the information about the uh, Brown Mountain Lights. I don't think we have time to get into I mean, we had such a great conversation with them. We were walking past them, and Teresa, once again, you know, and this is a good quality. I wish <laughs> I wish in a lot of ways I had more of this, but she initiates conversations. So she's like, wow, you guys got the best view in the house or something like that. And so the woman's like, yeah, we seen the, we were watching the Brown Mountain Lights. Have you heard about that? And then they bring us in, and man, we get into all kinds of talking about cool shit. They're really interesting people. But one thing I wanted to bring up, because of the timing, 
<laughs> oh, yeah. And she mentioned something called Elul. I don't know anything about this. And it's not Jacques Elul with the technological something-something. that. No, apparently Kaczynski. not. But apparently there's some date uh, that's tied in with September 24th through 26th. We're leaving the camp on September 24th, Saturday. Um, well, yeah, whatever. But she says, according to some sort, I know this is the vaguest thing ever. I'm, it's only going to be interesting if something happens. But she thinks this is going to be a very monumental, like 9 11, uh, earthquakes, something's going to happen. This weekend. This weekend. So this is Thursday for us. This is September what? This is two days before this date. 22nd, 2022. You will be receiving this podcast on Sunday, the last day of this time frame I'm talking about. That's the 26th. But 24th, 25th, 26th, according to her, according to something's got to do with Alul, uh, something is supposed to happen. So I just wanted to put that out there because if something does happen and this prediction, wherever she got it from, was right, this is going to be hella interesting. <laughs> if nothing happens, well, you know, these are crazy fucking times we're living in. A couple years ago, if somebody would have started talking about some of the stuff I'm hearing people talk about, I would have rolled my eyes. I would have been like, oh, fucking lizard people. Like, But, you know, shit has gotten so crazy that I'm trying to be open to things because crazy shit is happening. Crazy shit is happening right there on the news. So if there's crazy shit that's not being talked about behind the scenes, it kind of makes sense. But at the same time, you want to be critical. You don't want to get swept up with every conspiracy theory. We've run into one woman that's camping out in the woods that she's just run with every conspiracy theory. If if it's they're all connected to they're all connected, and she does a beautiful job of connecting them. But she is obviously letting the shit just suck her into crazy town. There's mm-hmm. too many conspiracy theories. Everything she runs into, she believes. You don't want to go that direction either. You want to still maintain critical thinking, but. The things these guys were talking about, I don't know what to believe, but it was interesting. And uh, let's all wish each other luck this weekend. <laughs> yeah. All right. Anything you want to say before we close out? Um, no, I, th- I think that's pretty much it for this episode. Uh, yeah. All right. So uh, feel free to send us a message. Um, tell me what that forces that send springs to the top of mountains what natural force causes that um questions comments uh tirades we love them all we we even like it when you uh had one guy send us a long message of uh criticisms and it gave us a great platform to talk more about things that we were interested in yeah so So, if you send us something yeah we're not going to be mad if you send us a criticism we actually really like a chance to get deeper into stuff yeah we may read it so if you don't want us to read it you got to tell us that Yeah, if you specifically don't want your message read, as far as I'm concerned, if you write to us as Escaping Society, it's implied that we can can share your message. So, yeah, and um, we have a YouTube channel that's grossly neglected, but there might be a few things you find interesting on there. Uh, You can find it at Gumby Montgomery, like the capital of Alabama. Oh, boy. Got a Facebook page. Again, we're kind of neglecting everything technological. Yeah, we're out in the woods. We don't have Wi-Fi yeah, or and I'm glad to be electricity. I hope I can keep neglecting it when we have Wi-Fi again this winter. Yeah. And um, Websites neglected. Website, www.escapingsociety.weebly. B as in Brown Mountain Lights. Oh, that's so Damn, good. Damn, still got it. Dot com. <laughs> 
And um, we have a donate button. So if you are so impressed with what we just gave you, this gold we are heaping upon your plate. Yeah. Just be like that, you know, like, like, like Teresa, like. You know, like when you pay your taxes and you don't really, you know, want to. Well, you just do that with us. You can just give us money. Yeah, we're like the little yellow jackets. Just like chip, <laughs> chip, chip us off a little nugget, you know, a little piece of ham. So I guess that's it. That's it. All right. Bye. Because we'll be gone over that next horizon. We ain't got no address.